In hard times, people will sell their second homes, they'll sell other assets, but they hold on to their plane till the very last drop. Why really? Why? Yeah. The one thing people can't do is have the private jet experience in any other form. <laughs> they just don't want to give it up. You could do something pretty cool. You could probably figure a way to find a bunch of different influencers in that city and fly them back, have a meeting and give them a plane ticket back home. I mean, you could do some really inventive stuff. That's great. That's great. Nick, this is going to be fun. The person we're going to interview is in the charter jet business. I personally know Nick, really smart guy, very interesting business. I think you're going to like this one. I think I will too. I have flown private and I like it. I know a little bit about it, but what I've seen on the notes, he's got a really interesting model and he's growing rapidly. And yeah, he's doing like 40 or 50 million a year of revenue. And you said he he really is a quality guy that has a value prop that's unique and beneficial. So it's going to be really fun and it's going to be one of those sexy areas we both will like. So I look forward to it. Yeah, me too. So we're a predominantly operations focused company, which makes sense as an airline. Operations are everything, no matter how good a marketing you can do. If you can't make it operate well, you're going to have all kinds of issues, whether it's safety or cost issues or whatever that might be. So relatively, you know, thin margins, scale doesn't really work in aviation. You just end up with more cost structure the bigger you go. So we find it's just like, I think one of the questions was scale versus growth. We are in growth mode. But the number one thing that's going to allow us to grow right now is attracting aircraft to our certificate. So imagine that there's a bunch of individual owners scattered all over the country that have the exact kind of planes we want. And we're trying to find ways to make us stand out, knowing that we're competing with some very, very large organizations that have name brand recognition. Like who? When you look at like NetJets, Executive Jet Management, JetLinks, Fly Exclusive, Solaris, there are a bunch of players that, again, like someone that just knows of the jet industry or is just first time into it would know of these players. We have a sales team that calls, like does cold calling to owners of aircraft. And they're like, interesting, but who the hell are you people? You know, first like establish some sort of credibility. But but the second thing is we're just trying to find if there are other creative ways to attract people to the space. Right now, buying aircraft doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense because they're about 50% higher than where they were pre-pandemic. We used to go buy planes ourselves, but right now, it's not really a sensible strategy to do that. So instead, we need to find people that already own and attract them to us. And what's the model that you offer them, Nick? So I'll tell you the industry standard. I'll tell you what we do because I think it's an important distinction is the the traditional company would do it like a timeshare where they'd say like, look, it's your airplane. You give it to us. We're going to take 15% off of the top of whatever we sell. You pay everything. We'll give you 85% of the revenue. But it doesn't take long to tease that apart and say, well, if you sell the airplane below what it costs me, you still get your 15%, but I'm losing my shirt. So we said, this is a dumb model. And a lot of people that own airplanes are not excited about the variability of maintenance. So we said, look, let's switch the whole model around. We'll take the risk. So we'll take someone's airplane. We pay all the maintenance, all the fixed costs, everything. They get money per hour that we fly, guaranteed rate per hour that we fly. And they pay costs when they fly their own airplane, but there's no, they don't write any checks to manage the airplane. We take all the overhead maintenance, risk, pilots, insurance, parking, all that stuff. Yeah. We found that that's a much better way to do it. And, and do they have to allocate a minimum amount to you of time? In that case, it's basically as if we're leasing the airplane off of them. We're saying it's now basically our airplane. And they get, you, would get, you would get 30 days a year or 45 days a year that you could use your own airplane at cost. But again, it's great because then you, you never write any more checks. What are some of the tax advantages that people get when they go through 
go through this exercise? So if someone already owns and they've already taken advantage of it, but in the case of someone who's considering buying for the first time, Jay wants to buy a plane. <laughs> oh, perfect. So this year, if you buy, it's a hundred percent bonus depreciation. So I'll give you the quick math. Let's just pretend you want to buy a $2 million airplane. You put 20% down and get the rest financed. So 400,000 out of pocket. But most people are basically writing down again, $2 million of income. So let's call it sure. $800,000 savings on actual tax payments this year. So it's cash positive in year one. And do they actually, can they make money on the deal or is it going to be a break even? We always tell people if there's, there are good years where money can be made. Yeah. Real estate's a better investment dollar to dollar. This is a great investment. If someone's saying I was going to fly private anyway, or I already charter, I have a jet card. This is the most affordable way to convert that to your own use with the tax benefit, with all the risk off of the airplane. Right. So, so if you can get close to break even and you I have 30 it. days of private a year, that's the win. And so are they all jets? Nick? Generally, yes. We, we, we personally work with jet equipment only. And then what are the size, sizes? So we have midsize, which is about seven seats. And then we have heavies. Uh, so are, are you familiar with, with private jet types? Or enough. I mean, so what do you, you have? You would have what? Like you, you have a gold strainers and things? So we have Challenger 604, 605, 650s as the heavies. And then we have Citation Excels as the midsize. Okay. All and, right. and, and we pick those because they're just the most popular in their category which makes them really easy to charter out. Yes, good. And then are they busy right now almost all the time? If we have pilots and they're not broken, they're flying. <laughs> it, it is amazing how it shifted from COVID, isn't it? Literally, we doubled our business in like nine months. Yeah. I know. It's a and, and is it stuck? I mean, I mean, we're not fully out of COVID, but is, has the, the demand still been uh, almost as strong as it was a year or two ago? Yeah, so there's like a slight turn there. But for the most part, what we've seen is so many new people enter charter during the pandemic that it is so sticky and the airlines have screwed up so royally in the last couple of months and they're just canceling stuff left and right. So despite all the celebrity shaming, we're seeing that the industry is still going in the right direction. And what we've also found is in hard times, people will sell their second homes, they'll, they'll sell other assets, but they hold on to their plane till the very last drop. Why really? Why? Yeah. It's the only thing you can't recreate in any other way. You can Airbnb a second home, right? You can, you could do all, you could rent just about anything. But the one thing people can't do is have the private jet experience in any other form. They just don't want to give it up. Interesting. And what does it cost to fly an hour right now? Roughly. So if you were an owner, let's, let's talk about owner versus charter rates. Sure. So, and jet cars. If you went in jet card, if you bought a jet card for mid-sized jets, let's just use the citation Excel. You're probably going to be close to between 8,500 and 10,000 an hour for a midsize per hour. To charter it, it's about four to 5,000 an hour. And for an owner, it's about 2,500 an hour. How did gas prices affect business? You know, we all tried to hold our rates down. I think a lot of companies were like, let's just ride it out because it does become a race to the bottom where whoever has the most cash reserves just says, I won't raise my rates. And then everyone rushes to that company. So the industry did not really adjust the way it should have. We all just gave up some of our margin for a little while. Interesting. Do you ever think of like hedging with like going short, like gas futures? I actually did some calls with some people on that front. And uh, what they said is uh, you can lose your ass real quick on this. If you do it wrong, you got to play the long game. And they were like, unless you're actually someone who follows fuel futures and things like that, don't mess around with it. So I had a, a bunch of financial analysts say, don't touch it. We could talk separately about it, but if you bought like put options and you, you're kind of locked in, you, you commit to a certain amount, right? It's like buying insurance. So it's just a hedge. Interesting. 
Okay, so when you have to compete, when your salespeople find somebody's got a plane, right now, if they have a plane, is it contractually going to be uh, committed to one of these others, or most of them going to basically operate it themselves, either or all? Most of them are with another management company of some kind. And so generally there's like a 30 to 90 day out clause that they have to do. So it's a little bit like getting someone to switch a doctor, right? The only time someone's going to switch a doctor is when they're having a really bad experience. So we found that it's, unless we have some insanely different offer for them, they're going to say like, I'm good where I am. But I think our offer is actually, we want to meet people right at their max point of frustration. They just had a crazy maintenance bill. Their management company didn't give them the right numbers. They're not transparent, something. So we are trying to time it that we don't need that many airplanes. We need five a year and we would be super happy on our growth. How many do you normally get a year? We got five last year, but we had to buy them ourselves and then flip them out to customers. So we've never really done a strategy where we were pulling in other people's airplanes that we had no prior relationship with before. So this is kind of a new thing for us. Interesting. So uh, let me ask you this question. With your current model, if you're going to absorb and assume all the maintenance, you're going to have to basically do a pretty comprehensive assessment before you accept that, aren't you? That's exactly right. Got all the history, the maintenance and the age and kind of actuarial projections and things. Yeah. So we have, uh, we have our own avionics and maintenance shop as well. So that's one of our strong suits is we do really, I mean, in the industry in general, these airplanes have incredible maintenance records that come along with them and you press a button and it spits out a projection of the next five years. And so we have oh, pretty really? good access to that. So you What's got that? to start with, and then you do a vi- your own visual or probably. Exactly. So we're looking for corrosion. The engines are on an insurance program, so those don't matter. They're, they're covered no matter what happens. You, you pretty much get the point, though, for us is that we want to find the right plane, do a good incoming inspection, make sure we're not two weeks in going, oh, wow, windshield cracked. There's a major corrosion issue, and we're spending $1.2 million fixing the thing. That would be a nightmare. What percentage of planes, though, that come in... You know, you don't don't pass this assessment period that that you guys are taking it through. They all pass. It just means that the owner's paying for the initial oh. findings. Yes, gotcha. And so let me ask you this question. So the model you are switching to, you have not done much or any of yet? No, we we almost have all of our planes on that model right now. It's just that it was people that were close to the chest. It was like right. people in my YPO network, friends that, that I sold to. Question, where you, you know, how you got them in the beginning. Yeah, it's, I mean, YPO, everybody I talk to is like, man, I just want to get a private jet. Everyone says that, you know, there's that same narrative. And so a bunch of friends were like, let's do this. And I said, great, great. If you don't want to buy a whole airplane, I'll do 50-50 with you. I don't care. I'm happy to do whatever structure makes sense for people. So it was all, it was all word of mouth, all relationships, which I think the majority of people in the industry do that, um, except for the really, really big companies. And so we're trying to figure out how do we bring some of the larger company marketing tactics to the ultra high net worth targets, how do we replicate some of that for a smaller company? Are you targeting high net worth individuals or do you sometimes go after companies and they use it as a corporate perk for their executives? Big companies that own their own airplanes don't put them on charter. They just have it for their own personal use. So for us, it's generally going to be the individual who we want to target. And I mean, it's we have a list of, there's only about 1,200 airplanes in America that are challengers that we'd want and excels that we'd want. So we know like we have the list of the 1,200 people. Gotcha. And, and then how often are you, are you talking to? Our team is probably calling, I don't know, 15 people a day. And in the outside market where you don't have friends and family, are you rejected almost all the time? 
if we can even get through, it's a lot of gatekeepers, right? Tons of gatekeepers. Even if we know who it is, it's very challenging for us to get direct to them. I would say the majority of time we are rejected because they either say, I'm happy with my current management company if we do get through, or they say, actually, I want you to do some insane deal where we're like, that's economically not feasible for us. What's it worth to you to get somebody's plane in dollars and cents? In other words, what you got probably salaried and bonus or commission salespeople. I can't imagine if it's a slow, arduous process. Most of them must be salaried, right? Yeah, that's right. So if they hit a deal, what is that plane worth? If you have five more, what's it worth to you in revenue or profit or however you compute it? We say safely, um, again, plus or minus maintenance variability. We say it's about a quarter of a million dollars a year in profit per plane. Okay. So five is worth about a million and a half. A million two fifty, something like that. Yeah. yeah. All right. But if you did every all right. And then out of uh whatever it is, twelve, thirteen hundred, if you want five, uh, you know, the odds would seem good. Now, so when they go with a net a net jet or something, what's their proposition? So NetJets wins on like the IBM principle, right? Like no one ever got fired for it, right? Yeah. Uh I think people that have there's a certain level of wealth where we see people no longer care about the money and they're just like, I just truly want the best of the best of the best, which NetJets is. They're 800 airplanes or whatever the number is. Everything's newish. Um, it, it just means, it, oh man, it's, so again, the equivalent is we're basically selling people an entire airplane for what an eighth share of NetJets costs. Really? Yeah, that's the general economic difference between the two. And again, a, a jet card from NetJets for a midsize, I think, is between ten and twelve thousand an hour. It could be a little off. Wow. Our charter rate is again four to five thousand. So you can see it's a very, very big disparity. Do you own when you're when you go into NetJets? Are you partial jet owner? card? You don't own, but when you do a fractional share, which is what NetJets really is, you're buying an eighth share of an airplane or a sixteenth share. Do you do fractional shares as well with with your model? We don't because we don't believe in the model. Like we, we think that like when I say fractional, like I'll do a partnership with you because I'm never going to use the airplane. But when you have eight owners on an airplane and everyone wants it on the same day, you could figure out pretty quickly that the, the model is not about like when you're buying into a fractional share, the other people that are using it are not a profit generator. When you're buying into a plane that goes on a charter certificate, when you're not using it, it's all revenue coming back to you. So a very different model. So you've gotten clients planes from. Uh, YPO, do you do a lot of presentations to YPO? Not currently. Partially, partially the issue is like the whole non-solicitation thing is a little challenging. And we are trying to figure out there's a, a coaching group that we are talking about sponsoring or doing a relationship with that. These are all CEOs that are, you know, paying $100,000, $150,000 a year for their business coach. Yeah. Who is it? Uh, CEO Coaching International. Uh, no, is it, is it? So they all hit the same mid-market type CEO? It's a lot of YPO people, but it's kind of the ones that are at the top of the pile for the most part that are saying, I mean, that's a, I think for most businesses, it's a pretty good amount of money to meet with someone once or twice a month. Yeah, that is. It's, it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's sort of what I do. Do you yeah. have the capacity? Like, say, if you were to get five or, or you tap into one of these gold mines and even could get 10, do you have the capacity to, to handle uh, doubling the volume? Yeah, we can scale up pretty quickly. There's plenty of demand. Oh, yeah. yeah. So from, from a demand perspective, no problem. I think the biggest issue for us is if you went back a, two years when we started this process, we, had, we now have departments that didn't exist in our company. But now that we fundamentally have those departments, adding more people into them is not such a big deal as it was like building the department. The first year was definitely a, like a, right. whoa, we are hanging on to the tiger's tail. Right. What departments did you build? So 
It used to, I'll tell you what it used to be. It used to be there were people that were charter salespeople, so that mostly incoming calls. So let's say you're a charter broker and you're like, hey, Nick, I want to charter one of your airplanes. I have a customer of mine that wants to fly New York to Florida. So you'd call me. I'm the charter salesperson. I would give you a quote. You'd say yes. I would put the whole trip together. I would live manage the trip. I would make sure catering was there. I'd take care of everything. And then if the plane broke, our retail maintenance shop would handle that. They would try to figure out if something broke, how to keep it up and then swap something in. Now we have the people that sell the flight are not the same people who are the customer service once the flight's sold. So we have like trip support. Then at the same time, there's a flight operations group, which is doing all the regulatory, regulatory scheduling, catering, all that stuff. And then there's another department called maintenance control that just fixes broken airplanes on the road. Um, and they also do, uh, Jay, what you were talking about, they're forecasting when the planes are going to go offline for maintenance. So they know like, Hey, in two weeks, this plane's going to be used up based on all the charter flying. Then we have, uh, uh, we used to have just one d- director of operations. Now we have those split into two. Uh, so there's just a lot more moving parts. And then we have a, con- a continuous process improvement person. Right. I mean, the list goes on. We've added a lot of departments. So where are all the planes based? Also a great question. It used to be New York was our hub. Now we don't have a home for any of them. They're wherever all- they go, wherever they go, they sit until they get the next flight. So New York to Florida. Oh, we just got Florida to Houston, Houston to LA, LA to Seattle. We don't care where it goes. You save on having to bring them all back to one place. It's not that we save. It's actually that we can now charge one-way rates. So if you had normally charted from us five years ago and you said, I want to go New York to Miami one way, we had to charge you to come back. Oh, wow. Now we say, all right, we'll just charge you the one way and then we'll just leave it there. Is that unique? Do your competitors do that too? Or is that different? The, The whole industry has shifted to that game. And the thing I will say is that we do it better than a lot of the competitors because a lot of them couldn't keep up the maintenance reliability of the airplane. So they're breaking, they're breaking planes all over the country. If I'm in say Idaho and the plane is in Colorado, do you charge to get the plane from Colorado? If that's the closest plane I have to pay to, to get it from Colorado to Idaho. Yeah, which is the only time NetJets really works in my mind is when you buy the jet cards, jet cards only charge point A to B. So people that live in podunk locations that are going to other podunk locations will often find the jet cards are great. Anybody moving between major city centers finds that it, it's you're paying a premium for nothing. And you have planes in every major city center? I mean, if not ours, we'll just broker it out. So let's just say all of our challenges are on the East Coast and you're like, hey, I want to get a heavy from the West Coast to New York. Great. Then we'll just go swap with one of our one of our uh, competitors. We, we sell between each other all the time for the most efficient placement of the, uh, of the airplanes. Interesting. So let's go back to the proposition. So you have to bind somebody who is... First of all, who isn't using a lot, right? First of all. Second, who doesn't really want to bear the maintenance on it, right? And who theoretically would like to get, uh, if there's cash coming in, he would like that or she would like that. But mostly it's they're not getting full utility and they don't want to be stuck with the maintenance, right? Yeah. Okay. And is there um, a scenario or a dynamic or a profile that, that would be true of more than somebody else? Probably the most accurate representation of that we see is jet cards because people buy a lot of 50 or 75 hour jet cards. And the business model used to be, if someone said, I want to buy my own airplane, the old adage was, if you're not doing 150 to 250 hours a year, there's no point in buying. Our model actually lowers that floor to about 25 hours a year. If you're buying a 25 hour jet card, we can often beat the economics of that by quite a lot, uh, quite a lot, which is hard because now we're saying you got to convert someone from a jet card to a purchase. People that own, 
I do think there are a lot of owners out there that fly less than 100 hours a year. And if we could get those owners that fly that little, then it really makes a lot of sense. It's just hard for us to know who's flying only 100 hours themselves. Even though we see the flight hours, it could be charter hours versus their hours. We have no way of knowing who was on the airplane. So when you say before, what do you say about the, 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 the amount of time people are buying on average, like 100 or 50, you said? Jet cards are generally 25, 50, 75, or 100 hours. So when people so, buy 75, that's at 10,000 an hour? Yeah. Wow. So people are writing some, some serious big, checks. Big checks. They're writing, and that's what we're saying. For that kind of check, why don't you divert that to a down payment on an airplane? You get the tax benefit from it. You actually have your own airplane that's in a pool and you're paying instead of 10,000 hour, you're paying 3,500 an hour or 2,500 an hour. So is that proposition one that you really share in a mass to, I mean, you got your 1,300 people and how many people have those? Those are mid-range. How many of the larger jets are out there that you're targeting or not at all? Um, I, so I think it was, I think it's 800 excels and I think there's four to 600 challengers that were- Oh, okay. Up. So you're saying the two together is 14. Yeah, those two together. Okay. And again, I will say as a company from marketing and sales perspective, that is absolutely our weak suit, as you could probably tell from the conversation. Yeah. But I mean, so let's talk about beefing it up. Yes. So, I mean, there's many ways to do it, but first of all, you have the database and you know how to reach them. You just don't know if reaching them will get past the gatekeeper, right? That's right. Okay. And so what's the frequency you communicate now? If, how many salespeople? We have two. So two times 15, 30 times, let's say they're, they're really efficient, times, times uh, five is... 150. 150 times. 600 a month. So theoretically, every uh, two and a half months, they're turning that database if they were really making contact, but they're not making many contacts, right? What would the contact ratio be that they're really making? Probably 10 to 15% we can get through to. It sounds like if it's 600 a month, it sounds like after two months, you've hit a Well, no, but if he's saying he's not making, like the 15, he's only getting like, if, if well, it's, you get through if it's to 600, you may be getting, uh, getting through to right. 60. And of the 60, even the ones that will give and, them the time of day are saying, well, that's interesting, but who are you? Right? Yeah. Is it just phone calls that they're doing or a mix of phone calls and emails? But, but, or? Yeah. So let me give you calls. an interesting concept. You have the physical address too, right? That's right. Yeah. So this is a little wild concept, Nick. But there's an approach that I've seen very effective sometimes, and it's called an assumptive communication. An assumptive communication takes the premise that the recipient is the profile you're looking for. So instead of asking a question like, do you fly, you fly you know, 25 hours a, a you know, month or less, or whatever the right question would be, the assumption would say, uh, you know, my information or whatever, or I know you fly 25 hours a month or less. And it starts by having the people that don't are going to go, well, it's not me. But the people that do, you're going to be speaking right to them, if that makes sense. Yeah. So if you tried, and it wouldn't be mass because it'd have to be sort of quasi-personalized. But if you started with that kind of a letter and said, look, uh, you, you know, I, I'd like to have a serious discussion because I believe I can show you how to own the plane for functionally the same amount, get a huge write-off this year, and get benefits that uh, you're not getting anywhere close to with whatever jet card you're flying or something like that and start that kind of dialogue. And if nothing happens from it, it doesn't really matter, does it? Yeah, not at all. There's no downside. But I think if you played around with an assumptive letter, I mean, I believe 
So let me give you a different approach. And it's, it, it, it keeps that, but I'm going to build on it. All the research says you have to have, you know, something like, I don't know, 15, 20 uh, touches today to even evoke a response. I've done a lot of work with a lot of clients of mine, and I found that instead of having cumulative communication that has the very same theme to it, if you create six or 12 progressive communications, each, each one of which has a totally different premise to it, the cumulative effect is very powerful because different people are turned on by different hot buttons. Some are intrigued, but not motivated. Some are not intrigued at all, but the cumulative effect can be very interesting. So if you said, okay, these 1,400 owners are under benevolent siege, and we're going to basically compensate for our salespeople. We're going to create six, 12 different sequential communications that we're going to create that address the issue from many different vantage points. One might be what I said, an assumption. One might be a calculation. One might be, you know, a picture of the plane they could they could have with commentary. One, I mean, it doesn't matter. And then each one of which has two different uh, action stages uh, appended to the end. One is, you know, we'd love to talk to you. If we don't hear from you, we're going to, we're our, our, you know, either I, if it's sent from a salespeople, or you, if it's sent from the, the, the CEO, I'm going to have, you know, Nick, our, you know, head of, of, uh, of operations or client, whatever, contact you because I believe before year end, you should want to know about this because you can basically get the write off and you've got, I would seem like you've got a great incentive because now today is whatever, this is August, but you don't want to lose basically the 100% write off. And even if it's carried forward to the next year, who cares? I think that you could have a lot of fun just playing off of that if I'm not being too abstract. No, that makes sense. It's an interesting idea. And I think it sounds like really for us, because we've been targeting the existing owners, it sounds like the more compelling offer though is to jet card users that don't currently own an airplane. Because you're right, it's so it's basically saying instead of spending this much per hour, we're going to reduce your number to about a quarter of what you're spending. Huge tax write-off. Yeah. Much smarter way to fly. And, and the clock's ticking. Yeah. Do you and have the their, clock is ticking. Do you have their addresses too? Or just, That's my next question. Is that Jet that? card owners. I have to find out about jet card owners because I'm not 100% sure, but I think we get a list of them. Because you wrote a book, didn't you? Yeah. What's the so, book? Own your own plane. It costs less than you think. You could send the, the book for free if you have their address to these people. It might be. It's a bit. It's a bit outdated. I'd have to new it up quite a bit because those numbers were based on. Per- I, I would suggest why don't you get someone to do that for you. That's probably the cheapest. Pay somebody five ten grand to clean it up for you. It's, and and you could do it certainly digitally if the list of jet yeah. card owners was a hundred thousand. You could send out a hundred thousand links to your your digital file. I mean, but you know what you should do? Maybe yeah. you get. Uh, and there's something else we used to do. This is going to sound really uh, silly, but we used to run ads and things like the Wall Street Journal. And then we would basically, you know, we do reprints. We would actually, if it was a small mailing, we would tear the ad. Maybe we run the cheapest version of it, hoping it would break even. And we would tear it out <laughs> and send it to 20 people, the copies of it. If you, I'm talking about for the book, and and you could have an ad that said, "We'd like to send you a copy of this book." What if you could run that ad all day long? And it, let's say you could run a really compelling ad for that book, online, offline, JV it somewhere. I don't know all the different ways you could reach somebody. But what if you could run the ad for that book 
And every time, you know, I don't know what your marketing budget is, but let's say every month you said, I'm going to spend 10 grand and I'm fine losing five because if the book were 20 bucks, hypothetically, and you're going to get whatever it is, either 1200 or whatever the number 25, every one of those is a prospect if you qualify it right, correct? Yeah. And I mean, when you wrote the book originally, was it a lead generator? Very minimally. It really didn't pull as much as I hoped. And I found it to be, I think people bought it as gifts for other people in their life that had no actual ability to buy an airplane. They just thought it was a cool gift to say, I know you dream of owning an airplane. Here's right. a cool book. But you can, I, I sent them out. Yeah, I sent them right. out. We got almost no responses from people that were actual target prospects. Really? Okay. Well, it still doesn't matter, but it gives you credibility. But I think if if you can't get the jet card owners, let's ask if there's a pro. If your life depended on it, and you had to target or identify the profile of a jet car owner, who would it be more than anything else in a hierarchy? When you say in a hierarchy, what do you mean by that? Well, the first group, the most probable would be this. The second probable would be this. The third probable would be this. Besides so, jet card owners? Well, let's take, take a look. If you got a list of CEOs of Companies 50 to 250. Do you think that a lot of those would be jet card owners? Oh, for sure. Probably more of the people on the low end. So the $50 million business, the $100 million business, CEO, business owner. So now we've isolated a potential fallback if we can't get the list of jet card owners, right? Yeah. Then you do an assumptive communication to them. I know you're a jet card uh, user. I assume you utilize it reasonably, cost effectively, you think. But if you do at least 25 hours, did you know we can probably for blank get you get you the plane itself and really you know a two or ten million dollar write-off this year? Interesting. Yeah, it's so funny. Like when you say that, my immediate cringe factor goes up because I'm like, oh my God, I'd hate to send something that doesn't work, but you're right. They'll just throw it away if it's not relevant to them. They'll be what's like, oh, the, yeah, what's the negative? And now you at least yeah, yeah. they're in their radar a little yeah. bit. When I was when I was in grad school, they were telling me this story. Um you could be a stockbroker and you could send uh, 512 people, hey, my prediction's Apple's going to go the, up. And, the other, and another 512, I think Apple's going to go down. And 200 is going to love you. And, and 512 are going to think, okay, he got one right. And then you do 256, IVN's going to go. And by the end of it, you know, you do yeah, it 10 two times. I love you. Yeah, you got, man, Nick has picked yeah. 10 in a row. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, <laughs> what I'm suggesting is a very, between you, the question is not, oh, we can't get this list. It's okay. If we can't get it, how can we find the most probable ones? And you test it. I mean, if it doesn't work, you know, yeah. you stop. But what if when you say, okay, where would they most probably be? And then you just start saying, okay, I'm sure you can get a database of CEOs of 50 to 150 million or 30 million to whatever, don't you? Oh, yeah. And in fact, I know some people that work at NetJets and and a couple of the other jet card companies. I could just ask them, what's your target demographic? And yeah. let me tell you something else. If there's not a non-compete or a confidentiality that has been assigned, anybody that left any legitimate company that sells that, you can find them on LinkedIn and you could say, how'd you like to make a quarter million dollars for making a hundred phone calls this month? And and they would have relationships with their past clients. And if they're no longer doing that, and they're in a whole different career uh, uh, activity, but they had good relationships, trust and credibility. And they called everybody they had before that were their accounts. And they said, hey, you know, uh, I'm no longer do obviously with with NetJets or with ABC company. And I know you don't fly that much, but did you know that 
a company that I have a relationship with that I think you should talk to can get you into a plane for about what you're spending. And besides that, if you make that decision this year, you can probably, you know, get back three quarters of what you've already paid on taxes. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Pay for it for you. And and they can get it financed once you know you're going to do it. You even finance the, the differential until you get your tax return. Yeah. I have a bunch of systems questions for you, but one question for you, Jay, because you're all about partnerships. Is there a partnership opportunity with companies like NetJets when they don't close a deal? Yeah, they're, they're not going to do it. But, here, but here's what but you could With other companies? No, but there are partnerships. It, when you pitch this to an accountant, how do they respond? Yeah. Accountants are pretty funny because they get afraid of anything involving uh, capital. Right. They're like, but this is a long term commitment. So I find accountants are usually the hardest people to get on our side. Everyone else is all for it. It's actually not like it's the CFO. Generally, it's the CFO. Yeah. But I think one of the things that I've done lots of, and you should contemplate this, I have many different activities for clients going concurrently. And I always say, who's already got the trusted relationship, credibility with the same decision banker, but is in no way, shape, or form competitive and can make the introduction. And that, that, you know, if you say, okay, the CEO of a smaller company, 30 to 75 million, okay, you could just ask, it could be anybody from a, their insurance agent, it can be, you know, their, I mean, it could just be any of a number of generic things. And if you talk about coaching, you could also find, I mean, here's something very interesting. John Bowen's group might be a good Yeah, group John Bowen, but John Bowen's a difficult guy to make a deal with. But he has made a deal with somebody that I know. Who do you make with Nick uh, Natner? Natner, yeah. So somebody like John Bowen, who has 500 wealth, uh, you know, supposedly wealth advisors, are they really high-end ones? I think he's got quite a range, right? Yeah, but I mean, people like that. You go and talk to that group. Go and say, look, guys, everyone we bring in, you'll get, and it's got to be enough compensation for them. And maybe the compensation, Nick, is not money. It's access to plane usage. Oh, yeah, that's a cool idea. You get X hours of private plane usage. Yeah, I mean, I did a deal. A couple of years ago, right in the middle of COVID, I traded somebody, uh, I traded him uh, 125000 of my time for 40000 of charter because I, I, I didn't want to buy a charter, but I wanted to go to Florida and I didn't want to pay for it. So, I mean, it's got a seductive, sort of an insidious, if, if you understand barter and barter can be uh, applied to incentive. Not just a trade, but instead of giving somebody cash, which may not motivate him, you could say, look, for every plane you get, you get blank hours you can use yourself. For every yeah, that's interesting. I mean, but if you said, okay, how many people have influence over the people we want to reach? And the influence could be direct influence, influence on influencers. Now it opens up vistas that could be really fun. And then you get one of your salespersons to work on those influencers instead of trying to call direct. And I mean, today I don't have the time to give you the, the, the context, but it's not that hard to do. But that actually hard. seems like that seems like the most fruitful angle because I do see that's why NetJets is so popular because there's a self-influence thing going on there, right? It's like who, who at the country club flies? Oh, that guy has a NetJets hat on. Yeah. Right? And so I think for us to go to influencers of a community would be probably the single most effective way if we get that one person to believe in what we do. And you yep. know what you could do? I mean, you, you could do something pretty cool. Whenever the plane was dead end, you could probably figure a way to find a bunch of different influencers in that city and fly them back 
have a meeting and give them a plane ticket back home. I mean, you could do some really inventive stuff. What's the dead weight cost when when it's stuck at at an airport? And no, you're going to I mean, wherever are you going to fly it next? Yeah, I mean, if we're flying it empty, it costs us nothing. We're already paying for it. No, no, but yeah. like, just if if you fly from New York to Idaho and it's now stationed in Idaho, is there like a daily rate that you're paying to the airport to keep the plane there, or is there any cost? Oh, um, like a couple hundred bucks. Okay, so that's not a big. So that's not a big. Deal. One of my friends used to run ExoJet. And I had a meeting with him in San Francisco where they were, where he was based. And he had a plane that was dead end, you know, had to go back to Newport. And he said, you want to fly? I said, sure. It was great fun. And then I had to get a car to take me all the way back to where I live in Los Angeles. But it was great fun. But I mean, you should use that sensory experience to optimal advantage as well. But, but I think, I mean, I, let me give you a really interesting concept. I did when I was younger, Nick, $250 million of seminars, and I didn't pay. I think my total out of pocket for the whole thing fixed, fixed was 300 grand. The rest of it was just all partnerships. Every financial newsletter partner with me, Tony Robbins partner with me, Success Magazine partner with me, the in-flights back then partner with me, and I just paid them on the result. But there are always going to be somebody who has the ear, the trust, the credibility. Now, one more thing. There are two kinds of consultants. I'm a consultant. You're sort of a consultant. You also run a business. And then there's the McKinsey consultants. The McKinsey consultants wouldn't possibly do anything with you because they're corporate. But there are many consultants that are very high-end and have relationships or have sold or selling to decision makers, but they're more lifestyle entrepreneurs. They're making a couple million bucks and they're very accessible. And if you can give them a duality of compensation, I really believe the compensation that would rock people's boat is probably usage as opposed to compensation if they get deals. Don't you think really? That's, I mean, that's, I've had a couple of people ask me for that already. And here's the thing, but you can do usage. I mean, I've done tons of barter as well. The smart barter people like the hotels or the cruise lines or anything, it's always on availability, not when they want it, but when it's not being used. And because you have such dynamism, you can say, look, I'll be happy. Any deal that closes, you get a credit for whatever, five hours, seven hours, 10 hours, one trip, whatever it is, but it has to be on available. And that has to be basically, we can't confirm it until, you know, three days ahead or something. So you always have a hedge. So you're really, I mean, it's going to still cost you, but it's going to cost you a fraction of what you'd even give them in terms of cash and the time value of money. You can say, and by the way, you can have two years to use your credit. The longer out they use it, the less it costs you. So interestingly, I I mean, I very much like the idea of the lifestyle consultants. Is there a place that you'd recommend I look to find those? You know Justin Donald? No. He wrote a book called Lifestyle Investor, and he has a mastermind group with, I don't know, 50, 100 people that are probably all your target audience. Yeah, but I'll tell you what I would say. I would say I, there probably isn't, but I don't think it'd be that hard to amass. I mean, if you were looking for a database of, of just consultants, like high-end consultants, I mean, I mean, most of the ones that I know, and I've helped over the years, lots of them. They're not big corporations, Nick. They're they're guys that are making a million bucks screwed around. You know, they got maybe an office, maybe their house. But like I just was on the phone this morning 
and this is just an example. He's older now, but Robert Hargrove, he coached the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. He's coaching right now the CEO of Nike and the CEO of Nike. The guy works out of his house in uh, Boston. He doesn't really have a team. He's got one person part-time, but there's a load of their people, but they have influence. And if you said, I mean, he's probably not the right person, but a little down uh, the food chain, a little bit said, hey, how'd you like to get yourself, you know, uh, a trip or two every year for you and your family from Boston to Florida private, or, you know, you go to the Bahamas or something and have a giggle. And I think that would mean barter works because it's a little bit insidious. I own, if you came to my house, uh, uh, Nick, you'd see that in my driveway, there is a Porsche convertible. There's a Mercedes G63 uh, AMG wagon. There's a special Maserati candy red convertible, special edition with a Ferrari uh, supercharged engine. I drive an NSX. I've got a, a Range Rover supercharger. And with the exception of the Range Rover, I didn't buy any of them. I traded a day of my time, which is which is rack rate at 120. And most of the people would never have spent money with them, but there was something insidious about the trade that appealed to them. So I think you could probably, because you only want five. If you really yes. develop the market and you, and here's what would happen. You might even get such a backlog that you got a lot more than the five you want. And if you're not putting your own cash, I mean, you still have to actuarially absorb the maintenance, but you could take a minute any way you want. But it would seem like you have an urgency because the clock's ticking at year end anyhow, isn't it? Yeah. Is December uh, the busiest time of year because people are trying to figure out how to dump cash and optimize for taxes? Yeah, it's usually too late. We find that people that start in December never make it through because you still have like weeks of inspections that need to get done on the airplane. But uh, the last week of December, I mean, literally like a day before New Year's, it is total chaos with the, the attorneys and the registration yeah. offices trying to close the airplanes. Gotcha. How is your capacity right now and time allocation? Are you working like crazy or um, have you been able to kind of delegate what you can delegate and uh, kind of keep keep the time management under control? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably below 40 hours for the first time ever. That's great. Which is wild. Um, How's your team doing? They're good. They're, they're definitely working their asses off, but we... Um, I think our mid-level team needs some additional support, but like what we've done for this specifically has been really interesting. Are you familiar with PipeDrive? Yep. Is that actually as rolled out? Yeah. So we we brought in PipeDrive for this particular process and it's actually worked really well. So I think we've, the team communication is still a bit of a challenge because now our team is in New York, Nashville. We have a now small Florida location, team all over like Denver, Texas. So we are still trying to get people to use Asana well, believe it or not. Like after we did the the, the coaching with you guys, what it's like, this is great. Inbox, just use the inbox and use my tasks. Like this is not that hard. And, and uh, did you just hire a lot of new people that didn't go through that training or it was just hard? We have some, some departments are anti-Asana. Gotcha. Are, and is there, are these people just like email and text kind of people? Yes. <laughs> they love, they love their email inbox. And I'm like, oh, you guys are killing me. Are they just not not tech savvy people? Probably a little bit of that, but we're actually putting in a lot more training and development. We hired an employee training and development person. We also put in some new department leads that we're hoping will teach those tech things to people that have done it in email for 20 years. Yeah, it's the hardest part of it is the change management and 
trying to get someone to brush their teeth with the other hand is the hardest part. Yeah. But as you know, whether it's Asana or any of those tools, it's only valuable if there's alignment across the org. Because if one person wants to keep doing email and the other person wants to use another tool and another wants to use another tool, all of a sudden you have to look in a million places if there's not yeah. a lot. So, is it so I'm trying to see how hard we're going to push on it. Yeah, I mean, because again, I don't want to write people up. I think that gets to the point where it's like, if the whole department doesn't want to embrace it, we have to find a new approach. I don't know. There's two schools of thought with it. I mean, something like this, I think it is justifiable to say, look, as a company, you're either on or off the bus. This is how we're going to operate. Because if you try to adhere to everyone's preferences, it's it could become a complete it, shit show. It, Nick, I have a, a another question. Here's another access vehicle. Who else generically sells relatively conventional types of tax strategies besides a, a you know a CPA accountant? Who whether it's oil or things, anybody, it doesn't matter what your answer is. The the, the point is if you can isolate people that either did that or have done that, do that, did that, have done that, and it was a relatively credible deal, wasn't scammy or fly by night, even if they don't do it anymore, their clientele would probably be somebody that would be very, very in alignment with what you're offering, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I'm like, there's like a head slap moment in there for me. One of my dear friends sells pieces of real estate for tax strategies. Well, I'm saying that, wait, and not just he, but, you know, that probably the 150 of him is all over the country. Yeah. So I hope this helps you start thinking differently. A hundred percent. Yeah, this is, yeah. So I, I was just telling Nick that I work less than 40 hours a week right now, but given all this stuff, I'm like, oh man, I'm going to have to push that up to 60 with all these new ideas. <laughs> Are you in New York? Yeah, I am. Yeah, very good. I've done tons of this, but the key is not having to, I mean, calling cold is the hardest thing in the world. Yeah. You can find 10, 20, 100 different impact factors that have already had the sunk cost of years, efforts, and have direct relationships that aren't competitive. And you can incentivize them. And I really think that you've got the ultimate incentive because you've got a sexy a sexy compensation that is more valuable than money. Yeah. Because most people would love to do it and they wouldn't or or can't. But if they get access, if I introduce Nick and he closes, I get, you know, and and you really, here's the best thing. You get to pay off the commission at wholesale too, if that makes sense. Which That's cuts right. you say I would give Nick, you know, 25 grand, but instead you're gonna give him 125 a cost or 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 eight and it's only when you're not deploying it anyhow. Yeah. It's sort of cool though, you think? It is. No, it's great. That's great. It's a, again, I've got my, my wheels are turning all over the place. Luckily it's a weekend and I'm not able to start making calls yet. It's good. Well, I like this. I don't know that I have a lot more today, but I hope this helps. Super helpful. From an efficiency standpoint, Nick, where do you feel there's opportunities? Uh, you mentioned that some people want to use some of these tools, some don't. Where do you feel the biggest efficiency waste is right now inside? Maybe not yeah, you personally, but then just the broader team too, because it's one thing for you to save time. But if you could roll out something where everyone could be ten percent more efficient, that'll you know add exponential benefit to you. I still think that our biggest challenge as a company is that we've never been able to get a great system of storage and retrieval of how to do things. And I know we talked about um, what's the one you suggested? Notion. Or Notion. Yeah, we just could not get people to think that way. 
Uh, And there's so much, I mean, there's like also a lot of like technical manuals and things that the FAA requires us to have. We just haven't found a good way to do it. And we have, you know, we're on Google, which is the worst for file storage of any platform I think we've ever used. Yeah. So I do think that this is an area for us to solve uh, very soon because it's, we're going to start losing institutional knowledge if we don't. Well, do you have any, do you have high turnover on the team side? Not terribly. We really don't, but I worry that the other way I look at it too, is that there are mistakes that are made that could be crafted into lessons and better process. We're not capturing it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's critical. Cause aside from de-risking you from people leaving, which is why I asked what your employee retention is, it also de-risks error day to day when people are executing things. Did I ever tell you about that tool process tree, process.st? Yeah. So we used it for a little bit and, you know, again, I think that there was a point at the time the team was like, no more tools. We're not yep. taking any more new tools. And you have to be strategic and really just give them one thing at a time and let them see the value and get comfortable. Because if you give them five things at once, it's going to be tough. It really is a mindset shift and a culture shift. Whenever there's a decision made or a change to how you operate, it's just got to become a reflex. Okay, log it, log it in Notion or log it in the, in the knowledge base. Because ultimately you're trying to but what I found is people optimize for speed of transfer of information in companies, but really to have exponential efficiency gain, you have to shift the mindset to optimize for speed of retrieval and have everyone take pause and put things in the right in the right bucket. It's kind of like the fastest way to do your laundry is after the you take take it out of the dryer and you stick everything in one drawer. That's the fastest way, but it's slower to put together an outfit tomorrow. So you yeah. want to up in one drawer, your underwear another. And same thing in, in your company, you've got all these SOPs and, and things that belong in filing cabinets. Everyone's just got to get on the, on the game plan, put it, put it where it belongs. So right. I'd be curious to know more about like, so for us, I'll tell you what I believe is maybe not a totally unique challenge, but I think for a company of 82 people, it is somewhat unique. We have many different generational uh, or many different generations of people. We've got like, you know, 60 plus pilots. We've got, you know, as far as age. We've got like a bunch of mechanics that are 20s and 30s and 40s. Then we've got, you know, the the New York crew and the Nashville crew. So there's like a lot of differing stuff going on in a relatively small company. Yeah. But what we figured is we probably need a person who's going to champion champion this change and say like, I'm the gatekeeper. I manage this process. Like, Who would that person generally be? And you say you have two operations people that you, that you hired recently? So it's actually FAA position. So a director of operations is actually like an airline role. Oh, I see. Um, Yeah. So uh, one of the holes we have in our company, we think is we need some really good, but like administrative operational leadership, not, not aircraft operational leadership. Yeah. I think that that'd probably be a big impact for you. Yeah. So I think that person would probably be one of the the one I would go to. I'd say like, figure this thing out. Because not only will you potentially get a 10 or 20% or maybe even more productivity out of everyone, you'll have less errors day to day and mistakes being made. And then also if people, if, if, Retention's ever an issue. Do you do you have what's your hiring plans for the next twelve months? Do you think that you'll uh, hire a lot of people and go from eighty to a hundred potentially? Or are you um, our in doc class two and a half weeks ago was fifteen people. Next month's in doc is going to be twelve more. You're going to break a hundred people in the next couple months. So yes, the hope is by the end of the year we'll be over a hundred. We're just because every plane we take on we need uh, about five to seven people per airplane we take on. Oh wow. Yeah, well, wow. well, part of the onboarding process when you hire people is is part of it, how you operate and not just culture and the job description, but as part of that conversation, the first week 
getting them set up with how you guys operate? Yeah, it's been, uh, and I don't know how they're, I think we're using Asana to track all that stuff. That's where I think the team's done a good job where they, we actually went from having one day only in, or two days in our office in Farmingdale where we didn't have an office to now, like everyone goes to Nashville. We bring in HR, some people from IT. We do a whole week in doc. We're even thinking of adding the spouses to the first day of in doc. Cause we realize when people say yes to an aviation job, it affects the family very much. One, one thing that I did recently, I think you'll appreciate this. Cause one thing I, I learned from you years ago was uh, moving things from cost to profit centers. Mm-hmm. So one thing that we're going to be doing is trying to make hiring be a profit center instead of a cost center. And so as we try to hire consultants, we're going to be creating a certification program. So we make them pay money to get certified in these tools. And then we cherry pick the good people and offer them a job. But I wonder if um, part of the interview process before they're even in the onboarding phase, you give them access to some of these learning materials and only give them a job offer if they have demonstrated certain proficiencies that you're looking for. God, I'd love to do that. I'd love to put up more barriers for people. But what we found is in our industry, if they can fly an airplane, go get them. Whatever. It, <laughs> it fair enough. There. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there is a massive pilot shortage right now. So we're trying to cherry pick as much as we can, but it is. Are they, sal- they all salaried or are they hourly? Salaried. What do you have to pay a pilot? Um, what we've seen is our pilots make anywhere from, you know, like a co-pilot, let's say, makes as little as 60 and our captains can make as much as like 170. Really? Wow. Big variance. Where do you, where do yeah. you find them? Um, they work for other companies and we just try to take them from there. You ever uh-huh. get people that are transitioning out of uh, like Air Force or, or military? You know, the, the, literally that's the biggest problem is that the Air Force stopped making actual pilots. This is what I think the Top Gun movie was about, really? right? Like they, all they're making is drone pilots. So the industry, our industry, the commercial airlines and the charter industry were fueled on 15 to 25,000 pilots coming out of the military every year. Really? There's not, th- those guys don't exist anymore. Wow. wow that is an interesting piece of minutia. Hmm. Yo, that's so interesting. Wow. This is partly why there's all these predictions of massive pilot issues for the airlines, for charter companies. The Boeing has done a study on this and said, we have no idea how I think I, Boeing said, I think we need like hundreds of thousands of new pilots over the next five to 10 years. Really? Where they're going to come from. Hmm. Wow. I'm not sure those numbers are exactly right, but it's a big ass number that so, From an industry perspective, we have no idea how to solve it. So right now it's just, I mean, I kid you not when I say charter pilots, even regional pilots, back in the day, the guys that flew the commuters were making so little they qualified for food stamps. Wow. Really? That was only about 15 years ago. They literally qualified for food stamps and they lived in like crash pads with 10 other pilots because they couldn't make enough money to live. Jeez. Now they're starting commuter pilots out making, I think, 80 with a $200,000 five-year bonus plan. Really? Wow. What percentage of the people that own these planes are pilots themselves? Very, very, very little. And they very little. When, you, when you get into jet equipment, they, like 1% or less. They have no, no interest to learn that skill set. They're busy being. It's just such a huge commitment of time. A lot of them fly prop planes in some cases. I do know some people that own jets and have their own little prop planes because you can learn that in a year. Right. But to put in the five to 10 years to build up the experience to fly a real jet aircraft. Yeah. Takes. yeah. It's, it's a lot of time. Are you a pilot? I am. Yeah. I, I decided to take all the perks of growing up in an aviation business. Did you start this? No, I, I was second generation of my dad started a flight school when I was two, grew up in it. Uh, I was supposed to be a musician, but then decided I'd help out in the family business. And next thing you know, I was like, this is hard work and 
the family really needed the support. And uh, man, oh man, I ended up opting into the Olympics for business. (laughs) (laughs) How interesting. Well, you're really interesting. I've enjoyed this. I have as well. This is really great. Yeah. So Nick has a question. He likes to ask what the three or four biggest takeaways, if there are any that you've gotten out of this might be. If you'd share that, it'd be useful. Yeah. I think the biggest one that comes is I really like the influencer strategy. Find out who influences the people that either want to buy or own airplanes and build those key relationships. Because that I actually think I'd be very good at. And also this, and this stands for both of you. When people are in New York, I love taking people flying to Nantucket for dinner and things like that in my, in my little prop plane. So I'm like, there's other perks I can do for people that almost cost nothing, but are really great for relationship building. So yeah, Jay, that's on the table as well. And Nick, you know the deal. You're just always welcome to come join me. Thank um, you. Let's do it. So that I think is number one. I think number two is the, the head slap moment of who else is selling tax benefits and that my friend does that and he would be able to tell me probably a bunch of people that do that. Yeah. Third was I'm more excited about hiring this operational admin person because I never really put together in my head that that's the person who's going to build our our you know data capture and and recall for all this information and probably um, I really like that concept of the assumptive letters where it's almost like I think it's a little bit like like pickup artists are like just keep swinging for the fences. Eventually, it works. I'm so the opposite. I'm like I wouldn't want to send someone a message that's not relevant. I love this reframe of no, no, just carpet bomb people and let the people that are relevant self select in. I think that's a really cool way to look at it. I love that as well, Steve. All right, very good. Well, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate the time. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you find this show helpful, please hit the follow or subscribe button. It does wonders for the show so more people can find the optimized podcast organically. If you'd like to be on the show, we have an open invite to anyone who wants their challenges solved. If you want to get in the hot seat, you can submit your business right now at theoptimizedpodcast.com. If we think you're a good fit, we'll get you on the show. If you have any questions or recommendation, drop us a comment right here, wherever you're listening to your podcast. We'd love to hear from you. See you on the next episode.